Welcome to Tales from the Dance Floor, a podcast exploring the lives and times of people from all walks of life who followed their passions and made careers out of DJing, producing, parties, dance culture and the music industry. I'm Phil Morse from Digital DJ Tips. Let's get started. I'd like to welcome Jay Cunningham, otherwise known in the DJ world as Jay Cunning. Hello, Jay. Hi, how are you doing? It's wonderful. It's good to have you here. We've been talking for a long time about having this chat, and uh, I'm glad we finally got around to doing it. Yes, thank you very much for your patience. Uh, we uh, we got there in the end, which I'm really happy about. We did. Well, Jay, look, our paths have crossed a few times, um, and always pleasantly, and uh, you've got a great story of um, ups and downs and fun in the uh, in the music industry, particularly in what I would call the kind of breakbeat led side of the music industry. Yeah. And I want to talk in a lot of detail about that today because I know a lot of people listening to this won't even know the genres we're going to be talking about, and will love this kind of insight into well, thirty years now, isn't it, of uh, uh, of this kind of music in the UK? Uh, but also, you've got a real big history in radio, which I find massively interesting. Of course, being a, a podcaster, and I know you. You've got a great podcast as well. Uh, so loads and loads of stuff to talk about. And now nowadays you work with Den and DJ, helping them promote their very exciting tech. So clearly a lot of overlap with, with us and our audience. So thank you for, for coming on and welcome. Oh, absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on. So listen, Jay, I want to go right back to the very beginning. When you were a, a kid in shorts, did you ever imagine that what would happen in your life, the career you've had, the stuff you've done would be even in the area that it's ended up being in? Uh, no, Rich, no, funny enough, as soon as you said a kid in shorts, I just flashed back this picture that I remember seeing that my mum took of me uh, in the back garden. I must have been four years old with just a jumper and wellies on running around with nothing else on. So uh, I'm pretty sure I did wear shorts at some point, but just not on that particular occasion. <laughs> Um, so musically, um, I don't have that kind of classic story that, you know, my dad was an avid record collector and there was always music in the house. Um, we had a radio that had uh, a record player and there were a handful of records, you know, that had stuff like kind of Dire Straits and Beatles, but we just kind of listened to the radio. So I, I never really had that kind of musical uh, inspiration, if you want, when I was uh, when I was younger. Um, I mean, the funny, probably my first kind of foray into music was uh, when I was at primary school and um, they asked if uh, who would like to take uh, lessons learning the double bass. And I wasn't hugely interested until they told me that it was the same time as the maths lesson. So I said, all right, I'll sign up. I'll have <laughs> some of that. Um, I didn't do very well at it, to be perfectly honest. And ironically, when I left school, maths was the only GCSE that I passed. Oh, well, there you go. I think there's probably not a lesson there for people. Avoid the things <laughs> you want to do well at in life. Uh, mind you, it used to, me and girls, I used to avoid all the girls I wanted to do well with. So there you go. Maybe it's built into us. Maybe what we're really meant to be doing with our lives, we, we don't do. Uh, but anyway, that's far too deep for the first five minutes of a podcast. So, so, so all right, you're, you're, you're learning double bass at school. You're not, you're not really from a very musical background insofar as your dad wasn't a jazz player in a band and all that stuff so at what point um in your upbringing did you kind of realize that music was something that was maybe going to mean something to you forget the family forget everything else when did it start kind of being special 
So I, the record for me that actually probably introduced me or gave me a, a bit more of an insight into what I was going to like, because again, quite a sad story, but you know, my first actual record I bought was Kylie Locomotion. Probably shouldn't admit that, but there you go. It's, uh, it's done now. Uh, but I remember <laughs> buying, uh, cause you used to go down Woolworths and get the seven inches and I used to buy, you know, one every couple of months with the, with the pocket money, but it was, um, the Axel F theme tune. That was the first tune that I bought that I remember thinking this is I mean I'm not a very deep thinker but I just remember having a bit of an impact on me you know it didn't have vocals like you know records normally did and it wasn't really until probably sort of 88 89 that we started hanging around uh, me and my mates started hanging around with one of uh, their older cousins uh, who used to listen to pirate radio and he had a car and we used to kind of sit in his car and he would play all these kind of tapes uh, it was kind of it was kind of past the electro stage it was definitely more the sort of kind of acid house hip house kind of stuff and even sort of in the 90s going into the more kind of breakbeat hardcore sound and that was it that for me was when like what is this and i i, I persisted with my mum and dad to buy me uh, a little kind of boombox stereo that i could tune in the radio at night uh, and listen to the pirates and we'd record tapes and kind of swap them and and that that for me was definitely when the the real kind of passion for music uh, kicked off rather than just you know making alexandro neil and terence trent darby mixtapes for my girlfriends so yeah everyone seems to have a, a switch from some kind of music that they feel is desperately uncool to the coolest music in the world. I remember mine was, um, I was listening to Lloyd Cole and Orange Juice and bands like that. And then all of a sudden, it was like Sheffield Bleep House. And it was like, I'm so glad that happened, looking back. (laughs) Not that I've got anything against the kind of indie stars of the the early 90s. But but yeah, so Axel F, that was originally on the B side of some crappy TV theme um, Beverly, Beverly, Beverly Hills Cop, Cop yes, Eddie Murphy, right, yeah. yes. Yeah. I remember, I remember buying it too, and uh, and yeah, there was this whole synth thing, this whole kind of instrumental music. I guess Georgia Moroder and people like that were kind of pushing it um and it was kind of bubbling underneath and it kind of laid the foundation for a lot of what happened at that time didn't it yeah absolutely i mean like i say i I didn't really have i didn't really know what to do with that song i knew that i liked it um and it wasn't really i guess i can't even remember what year it came out but it was it was probably you know a year or so later that you i started hearing this kind of more underground you know sort of pre-rave acid house kind of stuff that i was like I want, this is it. This is, this, this is just crazy. And that's when I started becoming uh, obsessed with, uh, with music for sure. So it's for people who, you know, we're talking about the late eighties, early nineties here uh, in the UK for people who, you know, aren't, aren't, aren't up on what was going on. It was an extremely fertile time for music because electronic music was becoming makeable for anyone. You could get an Atari ST computer and you could get an early sampler. And I mean, relatively speaking, it still cost a bit of money to make a tune compared to, to now on your phone. But, um, you know, it was it was possible. And of course, we were being heavily influenced by tunes coming over from the States, but it wasn't our sound. And I remember every city had its own sound or certainly every region of the country. Yeah. Sheffield was a bleepy house kind of sound. Uh, Liverpool had its kind of big uplifting you know house sound london was very much breakbeat and the kind of sound you're talking about so describe you know describe what that music sounded like jay for people who have never heard it and maybe two or three of the big artists so they can go and have a look after the podcast so definitely people to go and check out is shut up and dance you know these guys pj and smiley got a big 
big shout to those guys. I've known them for years and I've got a lot of love and respect for, for what they did. Um, they initially kind of were putting vocals, working with Ragga Twins back in the 90, back in 1990, but they were one of the first people that were putting break beats into tune because really 88, 89 was very kind of 4-4 led, you know, whether it was kind of Acid House or the Summer of Love, the more vocally stuff, then the Bleepy House. But it was really in the ni- like 1990 when that the breakbeat element part of the song that came into uh, into those tracks and, and like you were saying quite right Phil it was that was when it started becoming a British sound you know you had Chicago Detroit um, that were very kind of you know inspirational Kevin Saunderson Derek Carter you know all those kind of goes that were making some you know phenomenal music but it was the British sound that that added that kind of uh, the breakbeat element then the rave stabs in there so you know if you for those of you that don't know the music if you if you know the early prodigy stuff uh, whether it be Your Love or Charlie or anything like that if you check out the prodigy's first album you know that was a very kind of uh, broad picture of what that kind of scene was about I mean that was kind of sort of late 91 92 uh, but it was you know it was exciting it was fresh and as you say it was you know some of this stuff uh, or a lot of this stuff wasn't made in professional studios you know people were buying Atari STs um, for however much they're buying a crack copy of Cubase that run off a floppy disk you know and then it was all hardware and synths uh, I mean I actually remember um, uh, buying an Atari ST it was probably 94 um, and it just sat in my room for ages because you know there were no manuals there was no youtube you know unless you knew someone knew what they were doing uh you know even computers were new so even just switching the thing on was you know was you needed a bit of a degree to do that in the in the first place so you know to produce music back then you had to be insanely passionate to to follow that you know to be involved with studios you know if you if you listen to a lot of the interviews or the stories of those guys at the time you know they were the t-boys in x studio or you know they just you know would follow a producer and befriend them and and it was very difficult to get in there. Um, but once you got in there, it was very rewarding because, you know, you built these tunes and you made these made these records uh, that were having such an impact. It was, you know, a hugely exciting time. You know, I lo- I'm in love with British music. You know, we've produced some kind of phenomenal genres and scenes that have spread global, you know, hard obviously pre kind of sort of the punk kind of era or after the kind of punk era, you know, hardcore was one of them. And that then turned into, you know, jungle and then drum and bass. And, you know, drum and bass, if you look at that now worldwide, it's just phenomenal. But, you know, the dubstep scene, the garage scene, you know, these were all British sounds that, you know, came out of, you know, a group of passionate producers that, you know, just stuck to their guns and and just didn't waver until, you know, it, it, it stuck and gelled. It's um, worth pointing out, as well for people who just literally this is passed them by that there's kind of two hardcores and what Jay's talking about is the kind of sped up breakbeat sub bass uh, helium vocal style well there are only certain elements but but not the not the grungy kind of uh, guitar led hardcore just to make it yes. very clear for people yes. who might not might think well hang on a second the prodigy doesn't sound like that it's well, the prodigy <laughs> <laughs> not only on top of that but the word hardcore actually kind of changed over time so you know when going living and breathing and growing up with that scene we all called it hardcore uh, and then it kind of turned into happy hardcore and so by kind of sort of 95 96 it was very 
went back to the very 4-4 based. And so hardcore changed or happy hardcore then changed into sort of almost techno with sort of those rave stabs and pianos. Uh, and then what was that kind of 91 to 93 era of breakbeat hardcore more get com- commonly referred to as old school now, but I'm, I'm personally trying to bring back the word hardcore and re-own it again because that's what I grew up and, and knew it as. I love it. They used to call it jungle techno on the radio in Manchester around yes. the same time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was the same was the same sound. Yes. So yeah, very exciting, very fertile times, and a lot of people, you know, everyone who's lived through it is just nodding away now, saying, "Yep, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it." And everyone who didn't, um, you know, uh, will, will know that, that 15 years before the massive global EDM explosion, you know, we went through a very similar, well, longer than that, a very similar thing in the UK, which never really went away. I mean, it's it's. It's had its peaks and troughs, but it's it's here to stay, um, and it's it's very exciting, like you say. Yeah. But anyway, Jay, I want to talk about the fact that you're um, in London, and yeah. London's an extremely, you know, you're clearly very proud of British music. But let's talk about London for a bit, because all the scenes that you've referred to have come out of London. Never mind Britain; they've come out of London. London must be a very exciting place for someone with your passion and enthusiasm about this music. What is it about London? What's in the water? I, do you know what? I think it's just, uh, I think the majority of it is a, is a condensed amount of people. So obviously, you know, from that perspective, you look at all the cities around the world, even Manchester, Birmingham and what have you, you know, London has, you know, millions of, of people. But I also think that, you know, for, for, for producers or DJs or people just wanting to kind of get into the music industry, London as the capital was this kind of mecca to head towards. You know, there are, there are many stories to recount of amazing producers from Reading or Birmingham or Brighton or wherever it may be. Or Hull, but, as, or as Hull, Paul the said last Paul week. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Don't turn up on his own with a with a rucksack and uh, a tenor from his mum. Bless him. I actually yeah. felt quite sad when I heard that. I was like, oh, I wish I was there on the end of the train <laughs> to give you a hug, mate. I really do. I welcome you to London. <laughs> Um, so I think, you know, just naturally people gravitated towards here and because there's, you know, always been such a kind of great uh, networking opportunities, you know, whether it be kind of small weekly nights that uh, producers and DJs will go to, you know, it was very easy for scenes and sounds and people to forge together, you know, especially like-minded people. I mean, you know, you look at the dubstep scene, which was, you know, basically uh, Scream, Benga, uh, Hatcher, I'm sure it might be artwork. I think we're missing a couple. You know, these are all Croydon base guys and you know this has all started at forward when they used to do the weekly night and you know i don't think there were many people there for ages but they stuck to their guns and you know then you look at the explosion that dubstep had so you know london's just got that infrastructure of people of nights of networking for people to be able to just you know make those opportunities yeah and it's um something that you've definitely been a part of right from the beginning i mean you mentioned earlier on that pirate radio and again for people who weren't ever exposed to this culture you basically got an aerial on the roof of a high-rise block of what we call flats or an apartment block uh, you made sure it was uh, somewhere that the police would have to be pretty brave to get into and take the thing down again uh, you set a studio up in one of the apartments and didn't tell anyone which one so they'd have to search everyone to find you and then you got your mates around to play tunes and it was a phenomenon across the UK we had several pirates in in Manchester, and you were talking about tuning into them in London, but then you've ended up not only DJing on stations, legal and and the underground stations, but even being a uh, having an interest in some of them. So you know, yes. um, Breaks FM, I believe you had a, you had an interest in. You've 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 DJed on Kiss FM and Cool FM and some of the old pirates like Lush, I believe, was a pirate. You Indeed. worked for Ministry of Sound Radio. Yeah, tell me about radio. Tell me how you got into into becoming this kind of 
breakbeat ambassador on the airwaves it's uh so it started actually with a radio station called uh, groove tech which was actually based in labrick grove um oh, if i try and remember the year like maybe 99 um it was one of the first ever kind of internet-based radio stations. It was based in a, in, a, in a record warehouse store. So there were literally, you were DJing in this soundproof room overlooking this warehouse of records. And I used to play after uh, Richard Thayer from Red Snapper. Um, and it, it started there doing a weekly show. And I just loved doing it. You know, it was about sharing music. You know, I got to play all the records that I enjoyed. And at that stage, you know, I was buying everything. I wasn't getting stuff um, off promo. Actually, do you know what? I'm going to take a step back. Before that, apologies, was Lush FM, uh, which was a pirate station, a uh, garage pirate station, which was owned by uh, DJ Luck of DJ Luck and MC Neat fame. And um, that was a proper pirate. I mean, I've got some stories to tell you that, but the ones that are probably suitable for the podcast, I mean, you'd have to turn <laughs> up with, uh, you know, all your records in carrier bags because you weren't allowed to be seen with record bags. Uh, one week it'd be in an estate. Another week it would be someone's house. Another week it might be in the back of a cab station. It was even at one point, if I remember rightly, it was um, at <laughs> DJ Luck's mum's house and he'd taken the door off the uh, off the bathroom and just put it flat over his mum's cooker and everything in the kitchen and set the decks up on the uh, on there. So that was uh, quite an entertaining time trying to, uh, trying to DJ on that um so i did that uh, and loved that i then got the opportunity to do uh i think lush fm had, had gone at that point then i went on to groove tech uh then from groove tech i then got involved in the breakbeat scene and um I started off just it was sending CDs off to Breaks FM and uh, Alex uh, Mechanoy's big up Alex uh, Sons of Mecca used to just run this from his flat and he would just play CD after CD so no DJs actually came onto the station live it was all pre-recorded I mean the people used to send in CDs like Freak Nasty Rennie Pilgrim um, Plump DJ Stanton's I mean you name it like everyone that was anyone in there was 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 sending in a CD uh, every week because this one used to record live onto a I don't know Philips CDR recorder um, and then I became uh, a partner within Breaks FM and we'd set it up uh, as an internet station but still on the FM uh, down in uh, Greenwich um, uh, underneath the record store uh, then from there, I got uh, that actually ended up doing really well because myself and my um, partner, uh, business partner, Terry uh, Atomic Hooligan, who we had a label, Menu Music, together, but we also used to do uh, the radio show together. It was called The Menu Sessions. I mean, it was probably concurrent listens was probably between 20 and 25. Like most internet, it was very low. But the downloads we used to get, I used to remember we used to record a 56K real audio file, like horrendous quality. But, <laughs> but back then, you know, you didn't have much choice with the internet speeds. Uh, and I remember at one point the guy who was hosting the shows, uh, he phoned me up from the US and said, listen, I don't know what's going on, but I've had to pull all of your shows. We are getting hundreds of thousands of downloads 
loads and it's literally you've maxed out my six gig whatever it was uh, capacity for the month in about 18 hours um so we we had some pretty phenomenal success with that and then uh we got offered uh the show got offered a, a weekly show on ministry of sounds uh which was on dab at the time um i enjoyed that but they were a little bit kind of curbing in the sense not necessarily in the music but you had to read out all of these things like the ministry of sound yoga classes or yoga cd and it was stuff that wasn't relevant to us so i i just wasn't kind of clicking with that um but it just so happened that after a year of doing that uh i was also doing some covering for tayo who was doing the weekly show on kiss fm and he'd left to go to Radio One uh, to do the eight, the weekly residency, and they opened up for I guess kind of interviews basically to go along and record shows, and I don't know who else did it. I'm, I'm assuming a fair few people did, and um, then I got picked. They phoned me up and said, um, "You know what, Jay? We love your show. We love all the energy, and we loved all the kind of tunes that you played, and the shouts to all these crazy people. Uh, you've got the show." And I, I just I remember that moment. I was. So so ecstatic i just i just didn't think anything could top it and then if i remember rightly two days later i then got offered the monthly residency with ram records at the end because my friend was moving to uh australia who was doing it klaus hill big up yourself klaus um and so that week for me was it was <laughs> such a phenomenal game changer it, it really was um did kiss fm for uh, four, four and a half years. And I actually took a break after that point for about a year and a half. And then uh, Billy Bunter got me on. He was on Cool FM or Cool London as it's known now. Um, and said, look, why don't you come down and do a guest mix? I want to hook you up with, I can't remember, I think it was Five O, the MC. And he said, look, I think the stuff you're doing with Breakbeat at the moment, because we were kind of pushing it into a bit more of a jungle dubstep kind of era. Uh, and I came down and I was like, do you know what? I really miss this. Uh, and that was... I think eight years ago. So I've done a weekly show ever since on Cool FM, which a year ago or a year and a half ago, I've now turned it into a podcast that's on Spotify and Apple Music and Mixcloud and YouTube and everywhere else I can do it. So, uh, yeah, pretty much done a weekly radio show since 80, uh, 97, 98, something like that. So uh, over 20 years, I've just realised. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. I mean, you're a radio man. That's what you, that's what you are. You, you play clubs and you, you, you produce music. You've had record labels, but you're a radio man. It's, yes. your, it's in your heart. Indeed. But I want to go back to that week. I want to go back to that week where you got the Kiss FM gig. Again, just to fill in the gaps, Kiss FM is a um, large dance music radio station in London. I believe it's still going, right, Jay? It is indeed, yeah. They, I've not they, lived there for a long yeah, time. Yeah, they don't focus. It's 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 gone a lot more commercial than it was back in the day, but yeah, it's yeah. Still, still thriving for sure. Yeah, so Kiss FM was, was, the, it was the station where you would hear kind of breakbeat music at 7.30 in the morning on the breakfast show kind of thing. No yeah. one else was playing at any time at the time. So quite an innovative station and very big. So you get this gig, you get a gig at the end again, you know, one of one of London's iconic clubs in its day. Up until that point, had you felt like this was a great hobby for you and then everything changed? If, that, if you could pick a time when, when when it kind of stepped up a gear, would that have been, would that have been the week? 
It was, I would say it definitely, be, yeah, I would say that was probably quite possibly the biggest week. It was definitely a hobby that turned into a passion, that turned into an obsession, uh, which then kind of got out of control. And it was interesting. <laughs> I, I've seen on Digital DJ Tips, you, 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 you talking about, you know, how to juggle a, a full-time job um, and a DJ career. Uh, and actually throughout everything that I did, I, I'd worked full-time uh, for a company called Bloomberg TV and, and actually had a very successful career uh, progression over 17 years um, there as well up until 2013 so uh, yeah I know uh, all the the pain and fun of, of juggling a full-time job with that but that week to go back to you to, to your question was definitely uh, uh, just such a euphoric week of just like wow this is this is actually coming together um, I, I, I mentioned earlier I'm not a deep thinker I, I'm also not a planner to be perfectly frank I'm definitely just I definitely live by the seat of my pants I definitely just go that seems like a good idea I'll do it and I kind of there's a little bit probably a bit of an over faith in 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 uh, karma and fate but it served me so well I've really got no reason not to not to trust it to be honest but you say that but Jay you worked in a in a good job for 17 years while all this was going on I mean in a way that's your insurance policy right in a way that was yeah something that you managed to to engineer that that gave you the freedom to do this stuff and you know you it's quite interesting that you say you know we 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 often carry stuff on our website about juggling a day job with DJing and the reason is that whenever we say to people what's your biggest issue in your DJing they say they don't say mixing or getting the music or getting gigs or getting paid they say time so yeah. you found a way around that you found a way to make that work for you so i think you know credit where credit's due you you gave yourself the freedom to kind of follow your passions. And that's something we teach. We often teach if you, unless you're the kind of person that can live not only by the seat of your pants, but turning up at other people's houses at dinner time because you're hungry, you know, keep the day job, find a way of making it work because it will give you that freedom. Um, Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, there's a couple of things in there because one, it takes the pressure off it. And if as soon as pressure is applied to something and that pressure almost always comes from financial, it can very quickly turn into a passion, in, into a problem. And I've seen this throughout, you know, everything that I've done. Uh, I even had one moment, I, I won't mention who it was, but, you know, someone um, who had at that point released 14 records uh, and was a very successful producer and was doing you know one maybe two gigs a month and we'd gone out and had a couple of drinks and he just turned on me and said I mean he actually stood on my toe and got right into my face and was like what how comes you're playing five six times like you've only released one record and blah 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 and I was like whoa what like you know where's this coming from and it and it turns out that you know he was doing only the DJing. He didn't have any other income. It was a lot of pressure financially. Um, he was he wasn't from London. He was living in London, and obviously, if you live in London, it's it's not cheap to to rent and and to to generally survive. And everything he did was all started to become about the money. And he he just it was really quite sad because he did lose his passion for it. Uh, I'm very happy to say that he removed himself from that scene. Uh, not happy about that part, but he'd refocused on his 
himself and then came back into the music with a job or financial security and just fell back in love with the with the music it, it's it's really hard you know time and money uh, are two things that you know time one we don't have enough of and the other one you know we can't control um it, or we never have really en- enough of of either of them um you know for me it was always about um and i taught this uh, on the rise when i was teaching for five years you know you have to be militant with yourself and again i didn't really plan this but i just knew that i had to do it so i just did it i came home from work and i basically didn't stop until six o'clock when i got home until midnight i did six hours every night whether it would be networking recording a mix creating some artwork designing this contacting people you know i would get every record that i bought um i would uh, in the early stages you know email again was still quite new but i took all of the email addresses off every record that i could find that was relevant to what i did and i created a group and every friday i would send them jay cunning's top 10 breakbeat tunes of the week now at this point i was absolutely nobody no one ever replied to me but i thought you know what i just need to get my name in front of these people funny enough it actually turned out years later when i you know started to make a name and got to know these guys they turned around and said you know what every Friday we couldn't wait for your email to come through to find out if our record label had made it into your top 10 I mean this this email literally went to like 30 record labels that was it I didn't there was nowhere really online you could put it uh, there was a forum or what uh, or back then it was uh, boards uh, uh, back then even before you know forums and um, it was just finding those little ways to kind of make networking but but I, I just used utilize every minute possible that I could to find a way to improve my skills as a DJ, make network connections, pursue opportunities, create opportunities, go to the parties, meet the producers, meet the promoters, meet the other DJs, anything I could to, you know, embed myself into that scene, uh, I would I would do it. So talk about your your kind of life personal life at the time were you the only person into this stuff in your group of friends or or were you the kind of a gang of you obviously you're you you're, you're not um settled with kids or anything at this point yeah. because that comes later yeah. um, you know was it just you was it you kind of a renegade on your own um or, or were there was it part of like your social group on it or, or did your social your friends change as you got into this? How did how did that kind of work out? My friends never really got into the kind of breakbeat sound. Funny enough, um, we were all massively into the kind of you know hardcore scene and, and and dance music as it kind of evolved. You know, we used to go to hard house nights, we used to go to garage nights, jungle nights, etc. Um, and then a lot of them kind of became more interested in kind of more band guitar based kind of music. So from my kind of circle of friends, really, I was the only one that was hugely passionate. But you know, I was very fortunate with the breakbeat scene um i was involved in the garage scene before and the garage scene was quite closed and you know it wasn't really open but the polar opposite with the with the breakbeat scene everyone wanted to know no matter who you were it was all about kind of you know this family unit of people moving together whether you just started you know getting involved in the scene or if you'd you know, you were running TCR records like Rennie or, you know, you were already playing, you know, at clubs all around the world. So, you know, that really helped to, you know, and I forged a great network of friends, you know, people that I'm really good friends with, you know, to the, to this day as well. So it's interesting that we, we're now talking about the breakbeat scene because this kind of was a development of kind of out of the the, the, the hardcore scene, if you like. And I want to just bring in a bit of narrative here because 
around that time, I ran a nightclub which had a, a kind of house, progressive house and trance room, and it had a breakbeat room. And you, I mean, this is this period in my life, I'm hands up. It, it felt like I was in some kind of bizarre Hunter S. Thompson-esque film <laughs> set for a decade. Uh, and, and I'm not going to pretend that I remember sitting down and getting to know this great guy, Jay, who turned up with his mate from Atomic Hooligan, because if my my breakbeat DJ pals who ran that room hadn't told me you'd been there, I'd never been any the wiser. But nonetheless, you were in the club. You came to the club that I used to I used to run, and our paths crossed. But the breakbeat scene, and I was very, very fond of it at the time, and we ran that club for a decade, and then it carried on after I was gone. Um, the, as you say, it was a closed – no, it was an open, but it was a very small yes. number of people uh, scene. And it was based around – well, initially it was based around kind of like samples of cl- – classic breaks and then it kind of got a big big bit a bit big beaty um i guess was what it was called and then it kind of became a bit more i don't know produced with people like rennie pilgrim and and so on who kind of pushed the sound forward but it was always very raw i think it contained some of that rawness and that idealism of the hardcore scene of of 10 years earlier um and it was a fascinating scene and i want your kind of take on the rise and fall of it, if you like, because it was one of those little scenes that kind of came and then then disappeared again, wasn't it? It did indeed. I mean, it had, you know, it, uh, for me, it, this kind of started as the, you know, the kind of big beat scene, you know, the sort of, you know, Fatboy Slims and John Carter and even the sort of early kind of Fresca Nova um, stuff as well. You know, I remember going to a club called Happiness Stands uh, just around the corner from, from Fabric. And that was probably my first introduction into, you know, obviously when, I, when, when we say breakbeat, most people will go, well, yeah, hip-hop's got a breakbeat, drum and bass got a breakbeat, and many songs do soul, R&B, reggae, you know, essentially you all have breakbeats in them. But this scene called breakbeat uh, was around that kind of house tempo, around sort of 130 to 135. But uh, taking it back a little bit, you know, I remember going down to Happiness Stands and, you know, after work and we'd get drunk off our asses and just dance around. I just loved the music. And, and that's what kind of inspired me to find out, you know, where can I find this music? And I ended up getting pointed towards a, um, a record shop called Carbon Records in uh, Knightsbridge or Kensington, uh, which was underneath uh, Urban Outfitters. Um, and that's when, so when I started, I guess when I got into the, the enjoying the music, it, it was kind of, the, you know, big beat sort of fell as quickly as it, as it, as it, as it rose. Um, and then that breakbeat sound, the more kind of refined sound of it uh, of kind of big beat came out as sort of breaks or breakbeat and you know there were early labels like you know marine prayed by adam freeland and tcr um uh danny mcmillan uh, those kind of producers that were you know forging that kind of early sound you know uh, obviously Frescanova, plump dj stanton warriors as well you know all those guys were sort of pivotal in that kind of starting of that scene um and it and it grew it it, it grew really well i mean look Feel this, I, you know, I've got a lot uh, um, uh, that I owe Breakbeat. It, it took me all over the world from, you know, New Zealand to Canada, Spain to Russia, to New York, um, to some weird and wonderful places all around Eastern Europe and Finland. You know, I, I went everywhere with it. And for a good sort of seven, 
eight years, um, there was a very healthy scene globally um, that was every. I mean, you know, Fabric was playing Breakbeat practically every Friday night. There was a Breakbeat room there. Plunts were doing a night there once a month for a good time where it was all three rooms for Breakbeat. Uh, the Breaks Pole Awards that were running were, were selling out Fabric and, and, and what have you on a Thursday night or, wh- or whatever it was. Um, so, you know, enjoyed a, a great time. You know, Radio One was playing it. Annie Nightingale had a weekly show on there. Uh, she still does, but she was supporting Breakbeat every week. You know, there was Danny McMillan and Tyre, them, or Adam Freeland, Danny, uh, Tyre, and myself that were doing Breaks on Kiss. And that was probably over a sort of eight, eight year period as well. Um, the great thing about Breakbeat, which part of me feels was also kind of its downfall, uh, is that it started uh, splitting into different sounds, which, you know, I'm all for, you know, drum and bass did it with kind of liquid and tech step and jump up and what have you and uh, the breakbeat scene did that so you had people like kind of meet Kate in Elite Force making that kind of tech funk sound so it was a little bit closer to house it was a little bit deeper a little bit groovier and all the way on the other end of the spectrum you had people like kind of hardcore beats like Control Z and Ed 209 who were making what you know was kind of being turned as tear out basically it was drum and bass at like 138 bpm just balls to the wall, really high energy, Um, you know, so you had the really kind of high energy stuff, but there were different kind of pockets in between of, you know, stuff like kind of plumps, which was nice and groovy. It wasn't, you know, it sat somewhere in the middle, you know, there were all these different kind of sounds, you know, and then you look, uh, you know, of left of field was, you know, people like Tipper uh, and Ills that were making, you know, especially Tipper was making his very own kind of sound. Um, and I think part of, you know, I think there were many things that that, that didn't help Breakbeat survive as long as I feel it should have done um, was that, you know, people would go to, say, uh, a Meet Katie uh, type night and people go, oh, yeah, this is Breakbeat. Oh, this is phenomenal. I love Breakbeat. And then they would see uh, a hardcore beats night and go, oh, that's a Breakbeat night. I'll go there. And they'd be like, what the? this isn't breakbeat this is like destroying my ears so as much as i hate kind of pocketing music i think part of it needed to kind of sit in certain places so people understood that were different areas of it um I think there were, you know, the other things for me, if I'm to be brutally honest, um, I think around 2005, six, seven, um, people started making a lot of breakbeat bootlegs, way too many. Um, there was, uh, in fact, it was up to 2008 because I remember that's when I finished the Kiss show um, and I refused to play a bootlegs on my show. I, like For the four years, I never played a bootleg uh, on the show. I, I, I insisted on, you know, pushing fresh original music obviously some of them sampled it um but it got quite heavy and it just really oversaturated the market people started making you know making less original music because they could get a lot easier money with with the bootleg side of it um i think the other thing for me is that it 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 was very hard for new talent to to come through the ranks um you know there was a great core top tier of DJs you know I've mentioned them before you know your Rennies your Stantons Adam Plumps Freak you know those guys that really uh, decline as well you know these guys really ruled the top and they were doing some fantastic stuff but I just feel there wasn't enough investment you know there were new blood and new talent coming through but I just I feel like the they weren't getting the opportunities they should do to help it uh, help it grow um, and <laughs> the other thing is it was a very white middle class sounding music to be perfectly frank um, and I think 
for a scene to really dig its roots deep into culture, uh, into the DJ culture, you need the kids to be crazy excited about it. You know, the kids that are too young to go to it, that will do anything, will swapping tunes on their phones or copying tapes or mini discs or CDs or whatever era you're talking about, you know, that young blood of passion to kind of come through. Uh, and I just don't think the the breakbeat scene really, uh, really had that. And um, yeah, it just, it, it, in in hindsight, you know, it should have survived a lot longer. You know, if you look at the tempo and the styles of music, you know, there was something for everyone and everyone that kind of were like, oh, I've heard, I've heard breakbeat shit. And you take them to a breakbeat night, like, this is amazing. It's like, yeah, this is this is breakbeat. Well, Jay, everything comes around again. So maybe the yeah. next sound we're looking at is, is the return of breakbeat. Anyway, talking about everything coming around again, since 2013, you ran On The Rise school and that's again where i crossed paths with you i remember having a good chat with terry when when digital dj tips was becoming a a school as well and we we talked about doing stuff together we never actually did but but hey you know i i was aware of you working then and then um since then you've you've been working with with den and dj what 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 made the switch first into training dj first into having a dj school and then out of it to your current career what was the thinking after 17 years in one job you know what 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 happened in your life around that time so at, at the 17 years i actually got uh, along with kind of 75 percent of the uh, of the tv side of bloomberg where i was working uh got made redundant and and you know because i'd been there at that point i was still djing around the world um i'd, I'd had a new label called Subslayers, which had been uh, around for about a year and a half at that point and uh if i'm to go, let me take a little step back because actually what while I was working at Bloomberg, you know, it crossed me a lot, uh, crossed my mind a lot of times. Like, I knew that actually I was hitting a bit of a wall in my DJ career because I, I couldn't go on these two, three week tours that I was getting offered, you know, in the US and Canada and Asia. Um, and so what I actually did was I actually tracked every penny I earned uh, for five years. And the idea for me was to look on average, you know, could I survive? Because, you know, my parents, and my family all lived in New Zealand. You know, I had my own flat, I had my own mortgage, I had a car, you know, I was very, I'd, I'd been so sufficient since you know the minute pretty much i'd landed in in nine come back from new zealand in 94 uh, and looked after myself so you know it's very important for me to retain that 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 freedom uh, and independence um so when i got made redundant in i think 2012 you know i i, I was very well looked after i've been there a long long time and i, I as i said it was very successful as a, a studio director by the end of it and i thought Okay, I'm 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 comfortable for the next year and a half, and if I'm careful, I, c- I can be comfortable. You know, not earn a penny for two year and a half, two years. Um, so look, if I'm ever going to make a career out of of music, this is the time to do it. Um, so I basically at that point, um, I spoke to Terry. Uh, I mean, Terry has been my best mate as well as my business partner, uh, one of my best mates for you know nearly twenty years. And when we, uh, I said to him, I said, look, you know this is the situation I'm in. He said, well, look, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of PR. Do you want to, 
kind of join in with that. I was like, well, look, I tell you what, if if I'm going to do something, I want to do it proper. Like I've actually got a business name already registered called On The Rise Music. It's officially done, registered with Company's House. You know, here's the logo, here's the thing. Do you, do you like it? He's like, yeah. I was like, okay. So we sat down and that's probably the first time I actually kind of mapped out, you know, a business plan and worked out because for me, this was it. It was, I didn't have that financial buffer. This was the financial income. So it was very important for me. And we worked out this plan for a 360 type music company that was PR publishing, uh, label and artist management, and also the DJ school. And the DJ school um, came a little bit later. Um, and we did, you know, we had a great, uh, I had a great five years and Terry's still having a great time uh, there now. You know, we'd got to a point where at one point we were six, uh, five or six people strong. We'd moved, we were doing it at the back of my uh, house uh, for the first six months. And then we knew we had to get an office because we were bundled in there. And uh, we explored all these different areas and we really fine-tuned the PR and that was when I kind of sort of I was enjoying doing the teaching so I said to Terry look why don't I just come out of the PR and I focus 100% on the DJ school like let's get our own identity let's get our own website let's let's do this properly if we're going to do it Uh, and we did and actually it was so successful that we ended up kind of uh, scaling down the PR so that both Terry and I could be involved in the in the DJ school and, uh, and you know that's when I really started becoming I mean I was aware of what, what you guys do I mean I have to say Phil I've got a huge amount of respect for you Joey Steve and, and everyone on the team at Digital DJ Tips because you know you guys even prior to uh, to me um, doing the DJ school you guys were a great resource for me to learn my skills because I've been a vinyl DJ and buying vinyl since sort of 89, 90 and then I to cds but then in the digital world wow like the the game changes there you know when it's software and all these different options so you guys were a a great resource at at that point to really kind of you know push my skills and understanding of the landscape further nice to hear you say that jay and uh we're we're still believe me believe people returning to dj now after a bit of a break go through exactly what you were going through yes like it's everything's changed help now it hasn't changed we'll, we'll get you past that bit but <laughs> but okay yeah i mean and we 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 love we love what you guys were up to as well and again you know we we kind of got to know each other if 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 kind of uh, an arm's length but then recently you're working with with den and dj which is awesome and we and we know about of course uh Denon's doing some great stuff but what i want to hone in on now is two things that, that, that we haven't talked about the first thing is growing up family commitments outside of music and fit and you know we're back to trying to fit it all in yeah and the second thing is your current radio show and podcast which we're going to give people the details so they can have a listen to has gone full circle and right back to the music that got you into this in the first place which i think is lovely but i want to talk to you about your thinking behind that but first let's talk about growing up family things changing at home and and continuing to follow your passions while finding room for all that stuff. How is it for you? It's it's not easy. And uh, I'll be honest, as my DJ career was taking off, I went through a few girlfriends. You know, relationships (laughs) were very, very tough. Um, And they almost all finished with, I'm not playing second to music 
I don't want to be second to DJing. And, you know, I didn't really admit it at the time, but they were, they were a hundred percent right. And, you know, this, you know, you often hear people talk about sacrifice. Um, and I, I couldn't think of anything truer to really make it. And it, it's harder now than it ever has been. You have got to one, have the passion to obviously have the skill or the, the drive to develop that skill but it's about commitment uh, and 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 compromise and sometimes and often sacrifice. Um, when I met my now wife, um, she was um, hugely understanding. Thankfully, you know, both of us were hugely independent. Um, so, and my career was already taking off. And actually, I've known her, you know, for for twenty five years. We were, we actually, funny enough, dated back in. 95 for about six months and then we got back together again about uh, about 14 13 14 years ago um so she's always known of what i've done and my passion for it and she's always been extremely supportive of that um and when we got together jack her her my stepson and her son was eight years old so uh, there wasn't a young baby so i was still able to be able to do the weekend gigs the midweek gigs the radio you know because kiss fm was live uh, every tuesday night from 11 at night to one in the morning so it was all very much a balancing act you know you I had to just I want I had to and wanted to make the time that we had together make it really count because there was going to be the following weekend where I was playing in Russia and that meant me leaving at four o'clock on a Saturday morning and not getting back to 11 o'clock on a on a Sunday night so uh, you've got to be conscious of what's around you having the support to do it is is insanely uh, important um when I've got to, you know, the last, you know, my, my son Dylan now is, is six years old and my daughter Marley, she's, she's going to be nearly two. Uh, I have taken uh, quite a big backseat in the gigs uh, for a couple of reasons. One, you know, I really want to spend the weekends, you know, with my kids and, and, and enjoy those moments with them growing up. I've got a little bit older, so you know, doing all the traveling every weekend has taken its its toll. I've always been quite quite conscious of that and and the impact of my health. Uh, and secondly, and thirdly, you know, I was running my own business. You know, it was one thing kind of going crazy in Spain for the whole weekend, and then you know, muddling into a job Monday morning for someone else where I could kind of fudge it for the first day. You know, apologies <laughs> if you're if I did if anyone from Blueberg is listening. You now <laughs> know why Mondays are very hard. <laughs> um and then Tuesday I was all right. But you know, as we get older, you know, it's normally goes to Wednesday and then by Thursday it's you know that's when all the smarties are back in the tube. So I, I really had to make sure that you know I wanted to wake up at seven o'clock on Monday morning and be bang, right, let's do this. And that wanted to continue through through that throughout the whole week. So there are a number of factors, but uh I, I really miss it, you know DJing for absolute sure is my number one uh, passion that I will never ever let go. Uh, and uh, the pl- I've got a bit of a plan. Uh, I say I'm not a planner, but there is a bit of a plan for this one. The radio show uh, I'm building up and building up and building up, and the idea is to get to a certain stage and then start getting back out there. You know, probably early mid next year, uh, start kind of handpicking. You know, one maybe two gigs a month, um, just to kind of get 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 myself back uh, back in there. But um, You've got to be conscious of, you know, family around you. Make sure you give them the time that you can. And having that support there is is, is really, really, really important. I'm certainly with you there. I'm sat here. Well, we're both sat here with our kids in bed uh, doing yeah. this doing this late at, late at night for that very reason. So I know mine are, mine are six and eight. So we, again, we've got something 
pretty much in common there. So back to the radio show. This is where I want to kind of, this is where I want to come full circle and end it because I love your show. I listen to you. It always pops up on Facebook for some reason on my phone. It used to be on a Friday night. It used to be my my replacement for Pete Tong. But uh, (laughs) but nowadays you've moved it to a Tuesday and I don't don't get to catch you quite as often normally because I'm here. But um, I love your show and I love the fact that it's it's shamelessly nostalgic, but it's also very, very purist. Like some of the the themes you have for your for your back to the you know, back to the old school days. Yeah. I re- you've re- you've really got to know your stuff to, to to know what the hell Jay's on about this week. And I love that. It's proper purist. Um what's the thinking behind it? What's the thinking behind it? Is it kind of like the modern version of a Northern Soul DJ with the tracks have got to be from here to here and they've got to be on these labels? And you know, is that because it, it feels like that when I'm watching you getting passionate about uncovering old tunes that you've been after on vinyl for 25 years and stuff is that how it is i'll, I'll be honest with you Phil. i'll make it up every week <laughs> well. but it's do you know what so back in back in that era sort of the 91 to, to 94 especially 91 92 you know unless you were going to a record shop two three times a week and you had an indisposable amount of money to be able to get <laughs> all of these records you missed out you know at that point i wasn't earning you know i think i was working in the green grocers earning a saturday job so i probably could only afford to buy one or two records a week we probably only went record shopping every two weeks me and my mates had this insanely stupid rule and still to this day I kick myself that we had this rule that if someone bought a record no one else was allowed to buy it I do not know why everyone thinks it's mental I now think it's <laughs> mental but there you go so I actually had a, a very small collection of records from that era and, and actually you know I was uh, I had quite um, a, a dyslexic approach to playing music I very much looked at the colours and the labels and the shapes I'd never used you know you hear DJs and saying oh you know every time I bought a record I'd read it in there and I'd read this and read that but didn't do any of that you know I, I was I just I'd put on the tune I'd listen to it I loved it that was the end of the story it's, you know it goes back to my kind of non-deep thinking and I would signify it by oh yeah that's got the you know the radioactive sign you know that's got the pink dove on it that's got whatever and I would really just pick music in that sense so now uh I this kind of, I've always had a love for that music but it, it's definitely gone back to definitely an OCD obsession over the last three, <laughs> four years, for sure. You know, if you'd be insanely proud of my of my iTunes collection, Phil, it's, I've put the catalogue numbers, I've put the artwork, I've put everything in there. I am so meticulous. So you're I've, kicking around on Discogs a lot, then I take it. Uh, to get the, it's, it's, the, it's the German promo I've got here, not the, uh, not the Japanese one and yeah, that kind of thing. Uh, do you know what? I actually, funny enough, Phil, I'm not hugely precious about that. Like, I'll, I'll take, I, I don't mind a repress or whatever, especially if the original is going for 100 20 quid i'll take a repress for a tenner uh, any day um but it, it was i the passion i've got for that music is actually stronger than it was back in 92 because i've got the information and resources i've got you know discogs is an amazing you know you find one artist and then you suddenly find out that he or she was actually like 15 different pseudonyms on the same label for the first 12 releases and so you all this interconnection and information and it's just so interesting to me and to be able to get this music, you know, digitally, officially, or I'm doing vinyl rips for stuff that you just can't get. I'm buying records. I've never spent so much money. I hope my wife doesn't listen to this. I've never spent <laughs> so much money on records than I have in the last two, three years because I'm going back and finding it. I just, I mean, I've actually got goosebumps. I just, I'm so in love with it. It's unbelievable. So when I'm doing these radio shows, sorry, I'm a little bit long winded, but I think it was just important to 
to understand where I've got to. So I, I ended up with this just massive uh, collection of, you know, uncompressed music that I'd put through platinum notes and bump up the dynamics and retune this and really get them sounding as good as I could. Some of them I'd put through Ableton and time stretching to get those little like vinyl wobbles out of there so that I could get my beat grid perfect. Um, I had all this music and I'd catalogued it all. It was dark side or it was happy. It was piano. It was this. I used the grouping section on iTunes to come up with all these tag words. I'm using smart playlist organizer. I'm up with all these amazing playlists and I'm like, when I was playing my shows, uh, the older shows, um, I was doing a few of those, but mainly kind of new jungle stuff with substays. And in all honesty, I just got to a point where I just just couldn't find any new music that I enjoyed. And the passion for the older stuff was just overtaking me, and I couldn't stop it. Um, so I thought, right, you know what? Why not actually – I found myself playing the same songs when I did a 91 or 92 or 96. So I said, no, right, I need to make sure I'm giving a good spread of diversity. So what can I do? Okay, let's do a label theme night. Let's do an artist-focused night. Let's do a style night. Let's do an early that year. Let's do whatever it was, and I'll try and find all these different ways of being able to present the music that I love to people that, that love it as well. Uh, the latest thing that I've done, which was um, – I'm hugely enjoying this, although it's a, a lot of work. Um, I did a uh, Remember, Remember, the 5th of November World Dance 1994 tribute show. And I took all of the tapes uh, from that night. I took loads of little snippets of MCs. I uh, contacted, I'm lucky enough to kind of know Hype and Slipmat and LSD and Fantasy and all those guys that played. I phoned them all up. I said, listen, just record me just like a little like story or just something about that night just do it on your phone and fire it over to me and i just wanted to present this show so that i was using all of the samples and sounds to and then i was playing all the records that night i'd, I'd, I'd got every track list from all of the shows put them in a spreadsheet picked all the ones that i wanted put them all in a playlist and i just played from that playlist i didn't plan every song out i never do i just chuck in between 80 and 150 songs in a playlist of that style and i just go for it um and i was playing like little bits of stories from slip Mat, the great story from hype said when all the indoor fireworks went off and it just went really really well i mean next week's show is going to be dreamscape 4 which I'm, I'm really looking forward to i've just been going through all the tapes and pulling out all the mc shouts and bits and pieces and trying to just you know customize it to make it you know i want people to relive it as best as they as they can i just i'm so i'm so passionate about it i just you know it i'm so motivated to do all these things i just uh i just yeah, I could say, I just come up with an idea and I just do it. I love it because I was listening to Sasha being interviewed and he was saying that the reason he doesn't do these things, the reason he doesn't do a tribute show or a, you know, a, a throwback gig is that he would never play all those records together anyway. You know, there was never a time when he would play all the records that he would be expected to play at one of those shows in one set because actually yeah. they weren't all from that month or that, you know, and and he wanted something. If he was going to do it, he'd put a lot more thought into it than just that. And obviously you're clearly doing exactly that. I reckon your garden shed in years to come is going to be the coolest garden shed in London. <laughs> um, I'm angling it for a lot bigger space than the garden shed at the moment. <laughs> and, and I just want to, you know, to give a shameless shout out to my friend James, James Timmis, who is the only other person in the world I know with a passion for hardcore as serious as yours Jay. Um, you need to introduce us for sure. <laughs> I do. I do. He will almost certainly have some dodgy download of tracks that you can't find on vinyl. I'll tell you that now. Uh, he's uh, 
He's he 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 knows peer to peer networks I've never heard of and that I thought were gone twenty years ago. So uh, so um, yes, I will make sure you guys get hooked up. Fantastic. Listen, you've been great value for money, Jay. There's so much we we could have talked about, but we talked about all the big things on my list, and I'm sure that especially for people who weren't lucky enough to be young enough to get out there and enjoy all this stuff uh, at that at that period of time, um, you will have you will have lit their eyes up and given them things to go and look for. Check out Shut Up and Dance. Check out um, uh, more early than moving, that. Yeah, like early moving, moving shadow, shadow yeah. suburban base, uh, reinforce. Those are the big ones. But easy, easier than that. Just check out Jay's show, and we'll put links underneath the. Uh, we'll put links underneath to it. But maybe you can just tell people the easiest way to, to find it as well, in case they're uh, listening you know, in the car or something. Do you know what the easiest thing to do is? I've, I've created a website called WeAreHardcore.uk. I've put all my shows up there. Uh, there's links to Spotify, Mixcloud. You can subscribe to Apple Music. Uh, you can download it directly. I've put show notes in there. I've done track lists for almost every single show, uh, except for the vinyl ones because they just take a little bit more of a, more of an effort. I put Facebook embeds in there. There's links out to buy stuff. Uh, if you're interested in buying that music, I've also written a blog of where to find old school hardcore and jungle, and I've put all the ones that I found legitimately to buy and support the labels. Uh, so there's a little bit of a resource side in there as well. So uh, brilliant. Yeah, wearehardcore.uk. Brilliant. Well, Jay, thank you very much. And thanks for taking time out of your evening because we're, we're busy family men. And uh, I do appreciate that. I'm sure a lot of people get a lot of, uh, lot of enjoyment from listening to the last hour. So once again, it's, thank you very much for coming on Tales from the Dance Floor. It's my pleasure, Phil. And do you know what? I'm just going to add one little thing because I know that you asked a few people what's one thing that you don't know about, that people don't know about you. <laughs> and I've already got an answer. So I'm going to give you the answer, <laughs> even though you've not asked me the question. So what? So, Jay, what? uh, Tell me something. (laughs) Jay, tell 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 the listeners something about you that they might not know. So, do you know what? I've really overplayed this now. So, anyway, (laughs) uh, so I I am officially qualified to solder American military equipment, (laughs) and this. That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah, it comes back from my days when I was working at Raycall, uh, and I did really well there. And they said, oh, we need you to solder some equipment, but you have to do an American military-grade course before you do. I was like, all right, fine, let's do it. And away you go. I think that's absolutely fantastic. So if making your own synthesizer, if, if after the apocalypse we need to make music and none of our computers work, you're the man to make the synths, right, out of the... Uh, the old circuit boards lying around. I'll certainly give it a go. (laughs) Jay, thank you very much. Uh, Pleasure. Thank you very much for having in. Uh, A big shout out to everyone from uh, Digital DJ Tips and all the listeners. Uh, Thank you very much for your time. Cheers, fella. Bye. Bye.